This show may contain explicit language and or spoilers. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Tonight we apply our patent-pending Stanley Rubric to the Grand Budapest Hotel, currently streaming on IMDb TV but can be easily accessed through your Prime account. But before we launch into this week's movie, next week we will be welcoming back another friend of the show, Rob Conlon from the Recruiting Hell podcast and Sweetfish Media. We'll be following up our earlier episode on Alien with its sequel, Aliens. You won't want to miss that one, so catch it on HBO Max before next week's show. With that, Dad, this is the only Wes Anderson movie that I think either of us has seen, and yet I have very warm memories about seeing this in theaters with you and the rest of the family when it came out. What do you remember about the Grand Budapest Hotel? The one thing that I remembered most about it is the actual thing I noticed about the film uh, watching it again, which is just the vibrant cinematography and how it was so well crafted with the the visual of the colors and the contrast it almost was painted as if it was a renaissance painting by the stark contrast for example the elevator is bright orange and then with the uniforms that they were wearing which were purple and so when they would sit in there it would be just almost breathtaking with the vibrance of the color so the color was something that stood out to me of course uh, i don't think you could say anything different the camera work is also something very novel to this movie i i really don't think there are too many other movies that i can remember that use a lot of this although i'll be kind of uh commenting on that a little bit later but simply put, and I called you when I started the movie or I put it on the other night, five minutes in, and this just brought a smile to my face. <laughs> like, I, I was just literally smiling while watching the movie. I don't know why. In many senses, this is kind of a very dark, somber story. But there's just such a comedic timing and humor to all of this that it just is endearing to me so i have very warm memories of seeing this in theaters with you guys and just it was not at the time something that i thought anybody was um, suggesting was going to be up for best picture in fact i think this is the last movie uh, other than get out that uh, was a spring release that got nominated for best picture before that it had been since 1991 or no excuse me Aaron Brockovich in 2000 and 1991's Silence of the Lambs were the last other spring releases that got nominated for Best Picture. So this wasn't something that I thought when we originally saw it was going to be this darling of the Oscars, and yet it got nominated for a ton of awards that year, I think an overall nine, which uh, we'll get to here in a second. And it was just a well-received popular movie, even though it didn't reach like the the true critics heights i just think this was a this just widely appealing movie so basic plot summary overview in the 1930s the grand budapest hotel is a popular european ski resort presided over by concierge gustav h played by ray fines zero a junior lobby boy 
becomes Gustav's friend and protege. Gustav prides himself on providing first-class service to the hotel's guests, including satisfying the sexual needs of many of the elderly women who stay there. When one of Gustav's lovers dies mysteriously, Gustav finds himself the recipient of a priceless painting and the chief suspect in her murder. This movie was nominated for Best Picture, Director for Wes Anderson, Original Screenplay for Hugo Guinness and Wes Anderson, Cinematography and Film Editing. It won for Best Original Score for Alexandre Desplat, Production Design, Costume Design, and Makeup and Hairstyling. Uh, some of the things that I've been including in our newsletter, but they haven't necessarily ended up, I thought might be a good idea to maybe include uh, in our general episode. So I'm going to actually include some interesting details that uh, didn't necessarily or wouldn't necessarily otherwise make it to the show. So this was the highest grossing independent movie of 2014 and the highest grossing limited release movie of 2014. The fictional Republic of Zabroka was named after a Polish vodka liqueur named Zabrowka. The highest grossing movie to date of writer, producer, and director Wes Anderson's career. The soundtrack features a rare instrument, the balalaika, a three-string triangular-shaped Russian folk instrument that was carefully chosen by Wes Anderson. Balalaikas come in various sizes, much like the violin, from prima to contrabass. Several dozen players from France and Russia gathered in Paris to record the soundtrack in Anderson's presence. The instrument is heard throughout the movie, but is most prominent in the second part of the official trailer, Down the Ski Slopes, with the balalaika's most popular theme, The Moon Shines. The cast includes four Oscar winners, Adrian Brody, Tilda Swinton, Fisher Stevens, and F. Murray Abraham, and 12 Oscar nominees, including Bill Murray, Jude Law, Jeff Goldblum, Edward Norton, Owen Wilson, Harvey Keitel, Bob Balaban, Tom Wilkinson, Willem Dafoe, Willem Dafoe, and Ray Fiennes. Oh, excuse me. Also, Lucas Hedges and Sir Ronan. So, what is your elevator pitch for this movie, slash what is it is about? It is a movie about, uh, a, it's a rags-to-rich story with zany characters who are colorful in and of themselves in a very unique situation and the story of how one gets to where they are in life. All right, so elevator pitch is usually five words or less. Buddy adventure film involving murder. Now, I went a little bit longer to what is this movie about, but buddy adventure film involving murder, a rich inheritance, and eccentric characters set against a 1930s Eastern European background. Because really, at the heart of it, it is a buddy adventure. It's Gustav H. and Zero. And their relationship. That's the whole movie. Okay, who is your best performer, then? My best performer was uh, Ray Fiennes. Ray Fiennes Why? did it did a uh, admirable job of being both at the same time suave and slimy personable and disdaining or uh or dastardly i guess would be a better way of putting it um there's just so many aspects of his character where he was a dichotomy and he portrayed it so well 
it took a I lot of I don't understand what you're saying. Well, he would be he was both charming and slimy at the same time. He you, could be said that, but what what do you mean by dichotomy? He's two different things ever at all time and some aspect of his personality or the character itself. He you could <clears throat> You, depending on what you wanted to focus on, he could either be very charming or he could be a creep. It's the same thing. That's what I mean by a dichotomy, which is, is there's two facets that you can look at it either way. It's a very subtle point that I saw in this film, or especially with his portrayal. See, the way you present it seems to be, and so I'll, I'll say he's my best secondary performance, so we'll kind of get that out of the way. The way you present it is that it's two halves of a whole. He's both uh, slimy, as you put it, which I think has a negative connotation. Correct. And charming. Yes. To me, I never really got the slimy part. Yes, he does some underhanded things and some things, but I think he does it with such a sincerity that it's not like the character that I would put down, and if you listen to the show— the Dan Lebetard show, you might understand, but the Stu Gotts character, he without shame. And I don't think of the Gustav H character as he without shame, just a person of goodness and grace that, yes, he does some questionable things or things that may not generally make sense to us, like sleeping with a bunch of older rich women. So you look at it as almost two halves of the whole, and I, I guess I just don't quite see it that way. I, I look at him as a maybe not the most wholesome character because I wouldn't I wouldn't classify him as like saintly, but I think there is an elegance to go along with his charm. And so if you were to say maybe cunning, I think I'd agree with that more than slimy. Well, all right, this quote, which I'm going to nominate. She was dynamite in the sack, by the way. She was 84, Monsieur Monsieur Gustav. Hmm, I've had older, but uh, you're young. It's all filet uh, filet steak. Uh, But as the years go by, you have to move on to cheaper cuts, which is fine with me because, like those, more flavorable, or as they say, or so as they say. In other words, if you listen to that, just the delivery is charming, but you listen to the actual words, it's slimy. And that's what I'm saying. It it had to be portrayed. You you end up liking Gustav throughout the film, and you end up rooting for him. But there's so much about him that is sinister or almost nasty that if, if uh, Ray Fiennes did not play the part subtly and evoke a certain element of charm and sophistication the part could have come off you would have had a much more difficult time rooting for him that's what i'm saying i don't know i i just i guess the the feeling of it i i understand your point i just don't necessarily feel that way if that makes sense for, for me in this movie, there really was no better character than M. Gustav. And he's kind of portrayed as a man time forgot. 
He's kind of this true gentleman that knew of friendship, loyalty, kindness, and spirit. And he's also the one that seemingly has a mind to get around most of his problems. There are very few times where he's either outmaneuvered or doesn't have some type of plan or situation that he can figure out how to either charm himself or outwit whomever he's against. And every time he does, he does get a bit of luck. So I went with Wes Anderson. I think that this is probably the peak of uh, what most people would feel is his movie-making ability. That's why I was really hoping, and I think you and I were both looking forward to the French Dispatch that was supposed to come out last year and has obviously been pushed due to the lack of theaters to this year, uh, we hope, uh, which is kind of another one of these Wes Anderson-type venues uh, with a lot of famous actors and really big names in it. And I think it is going to have somewhat of the same flair, but there's, I, I compare it to like when, you know, you've told me that, uh, you know, exactly when Eric Clapton is playing guitar, I don't necessarily feel that way, but like when Santana plays, you just know it distinctly. When you see a Wes Anderson film, I think this is so novel in its making from a, a color palette to the camera work, to kind of the the humor and the just the essence of it, that it's engaging, quirky, elegant, it's entertaining, and I'm bought in on whatever he does. Like, I, I still haven't seen Isle of Dogs, which was a animation movie. That's the only movie he's made in between now and when the French Dispatch was supposed to come out, but... He's one of those people, you see a certain movie and you just like it so much that you're like, yep, I, anything this guy does, I'm in on until he loses that relationship with me. There are a few directors from this uh, past decade that are kind of like that for me. Uh, Greta Gerwig is one. Uh, you talk about Ryan Coogler and uh, Damien Chazelle, which we discussed a couple of weeks ago. All three of those are on kind of the same level, and I, I'm pretty much bought in on anything Wes Anderson wants to do understand i mean he uh, i mean it was so well done and that's really my secondary performance i had him as my secondary performance as did uh i also mentioned robert yeoman who was the cinematographer just the fact of the camera work the color uh, it, to me the the color was so in, uh, rich and beautiful and the angles they used to shoot and everything about it it was just artistically beautiful and it made an elegance in the film that was supposed to be conveyed and it helped enhance the elegance of the of the hotel and of the characters and made it almost funnier by the absurdity of some of the characters and some of the situations so since you mentioned the cinematography multiple times, and I certainly didn't get this when I was watching it the first few times around when this was in theaters, and I think we watched it one other time past that. It's been a few years since I've seen this movie. But now that I've watched some older movies, I kind of got the impression that this is kind of a throwback to older style black and white movies, but with a sound and B very distinct color. The way that they step back with the camera shots in that kind of diagramic 
or diorama type viewpoint where it, you almost seem removed, like it's almost on its own stage play, and you're just looking in on a box of what's going on in the action, and they don't really move the camera other than when it pans over in those very quick um, pans. But you you seem somewhat removed, and yet it adds to the artistic essence of what this movie is. I think it, it adds a certain character to the film somehow, and that's unusual for the cinematography to add some personality beyond just the way something looks. But simply, I think it, it evoked uh, a level of humor and feeling to this as well. Yes. And, and really this movie is in large part, uh, a lot of inside jokes and a lot of kind of, a uh, a, uh, or a, uh, homage to older films and how it's done and portrayed. I mean, it, it almost goes back to, um, oh, what's the 1930s film that had um, Lionel Barrymore? Which one? <laughs> uh, the, the one that takes place in a hotel. Grand Hotel. Grand Hotel. It's almost. 32. Yes, it's almost a, an homage to the Grand Hotel. And there's certain aspects. I mean, for example... Okay, one of Jeff Goldblum's most critically acclaimed performances was the Ernie Kovacs story, and he played Ernie Kovacs. So Wes Anderson named the character Deputy Kovac basically as a joke because of Jeff Goldblum's relationship to the other movie. Well, and I feel somewhat regretful that... I didn't understand some of this humor set of his. And so one of the movies he had made before it, The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, uh, was a movie I turned off almost immediately because I didn't understand what the heck that was. And it's something I probably should go back and try and revisit, knowing now kind of what the humor is. But there, I, I'd like to try more of his back catalog, now understanding a little bit more about him and what he's trying to accomplish as a director. Uh, there are several other of his movies widely available. I think the Royal Tannenbaums is streaming somewhere. I think maybe on Prime. So you can you yes. can also go check that one out. And I'm sure we're going to cover some of his other movies as we go along as well. But uh, So my best performance was Wes Anderson. My best secondary was Ray Fiennes. You had that in reverse order. So then what did you give for your most charismatic? <laughs> Do you have any question at all? Really? You have to ask me? Bill Murray? Sir Ronan. Are you ever going to say her name right? No. <laughs> Well, that's all right, because they had a whole SNL monologue on it. I know. Saoirse Ronan. Saoirse Ronan. I just have always, everything she's been in, I've just thought she is captivating. And so... This is her most withdrawn part. I know, but still. I'm so drawn towards her, I have no choice. It's one of my celebrity crushes. It must be all the mousiness, right? (sighs) Well, the accent helps. So I still haven't figured out exactly how uh, someone in East Europe is going to be there with an Irish accent, but 
eh, that maybe that's one of my questions for the end of the fil- or of the uh, program. Literally no one in here had any bit of a proper accent. Edward Norton sounded like he was from 42nd Street. <laughs> uh, yes. Bill Murray sounded like he was from Chicago. <laughs> I mean, but that was not an important part to the authenticity of this film. Uh, for charismatic, I went with the obvious. Uh, Ray Fiennes to me was was the most charismatic. I probably should have recognized somebody else, but I, I think by far he is the character that carries the movie in most ways. I, even in his harshest moments, it was never too harsh or over the top. Like he's yelling at zero one moment, then he has complete regret and he's able to do it with a certain elegance and flair. And he just had somewhat of a kindness and a warmth to the character that was engaging. And Simply put, I think he would be the kind of friend and mentor most people, including myself, would want. That's my name drop. So I got to see Ray Fiennes in a play in New York and hung around in the stage door and got his autograph and got to chat with him very briefly. Um, Very warm, pleasant individual. In some ways, I think uh, in real life, he is a lot like Gustav. Probably not quite so so suave, but there's a certain element. You you just know that he is generally a, a nice person who's well-liked. I could buy that. I, I really could. So, moving on to best scene. Uh, what do you have first? I have so many. I'm going to go with my... With, uh, the scene with Gustav and Madame D., um, first of all, when I saw it originally, I had no so, idea. Uh, so let me differentiate. Are we talking about the one water she's still alive or where she's in the coffin? Where she's still alive. Okay. I had no idea who was playing her. They did such a great job with the makeup that I, I did not know who it was originally. And I had to, had to stop and think about it for a second and remember exactly who did play the part yet again. So, anyway, so I like that. It's Tilda Swinton, so we don't have lost audience members. Sorry. You're fine. Uh, I'm going to go with the Will reading as my first one. I just, like most of the scenes that I'm going to nominate, it was a a funny moment to me. But it introduces us to more of the characters like Dimitri and Jopling and gives us kind of this scowling background. You get so much from the visual of those two particular characters as to what their personalities are going to be like. Dimitri with his mustache and his just, like, scowl. And then uh, the almost Frankenstein look of uh, Willem Dafoe's character, Jopling. So, (laughs) and, you know, they kind of set up the scene with everybody's come out of the woodwork. There's a grand fortune at stake. And Gustav pops up at the back of the room, and there's several lines I'm going to nominate here in our uh, line reading uh, in a in a little bit. But uh, I think that that whole sequence just is is great fun. It goes back and forth. There's uh, an anger and aggression. Somebody's dead, but it somehow works. And it also introduces us to the MacGuffin of the boy with apple. 
So I, I think for at least the first nominee, it, it was a fun scene for me. I have uh, another one, and that is the uh, codicil and the uh, ultimate chase of Joplin of Kovac ultimately climaxing in his death in the museum with the very almost disturbing view of him having his fingers chopped off. To me, that just is so Wes Anderson, and it's so dark and so such dark humor at the same time that <laughs> you don't know whether to be uh, aghast to laugh. Oh, I, I definitely laughed. The three most sudden, like, gasp mo- moments in most other people's films all made me laugh. The fingers getting cut off here uh, as he murders Kovacs. There is the man with the large scar on his face uh, <laughs> moment, which we'll get here to in a second. And then the end of the ski chase, which is another nominee for me. All three of those were just like rather sudden. They came immediately out of nowhere. And yet the surprise just goes immediately into laughter. <laughs> okay. Uh, the next one I was going to do was the Society of the Cross Keys. Just because, right. number one, it's Bill Murray. And this is the seventh different film that they've collaborated on. Bill Murray is also supposed to be in the French Dispatch uh, whenever that does come out. Uh, I just, it's fun whenever Bill Murray pops up. He's notorious for who he works with and how he does his schedule. Uh, apparently you dial this landline to somewhere and whether or not Bill actually ever responds, he doesn't, he notoriously does not have an agent. He doesn't book anything. So getting a hold of Bill is like uh, a chore in and of itself, but he just, likes to work with certain people and so that's what he does so he'll just randomly pop up in the most unusual places but him being a a fellow concierge of this weird network of concierges and the the network that they have in order to assist and the weird repetitive nature that seemed to get funnier with each repeat oh let me hang up and then get me so-and-so from this hotel and just the way it kind of played out, I, I just thought it was it was humorous and it was a, a good use of cameo. Well, all of the actors who did or played in that scene were longtime Wes Anderson collaborators. And so they just automatically, whenever he does a film, he looks for opportunities to put each of them in. So it, again, it's just a good use of cameo. Yes. No part is thrown away. The next one I had down to nominate was The Murder of Kovacs, so you've already nominated that one. Do you have another one to nominate? Yes, The Prison Escape. <laughs> it, it, the absurdity of it. And, of course, you know, the guy's going to rat him out, and the uh, guy with the scar ends up being, it's you, you wonderful, uh, sweet man. I think it was the, I don't know, I'll have to look up the quote, but, I mean, just the absurdity of it. And, of course, then arriving in the uh, courtyard and the other prisoners take off in the bus and uh, they're sitting there arguing or discussing their circumstances and the fact that Zero forgot to bring the perfume. Well, and even then, like, his yelling at him was uh, minuscule because then you get that moment of vulnerability that he's a refugee and how that 
ends up working itself into the situation of the movie. But the next one I was going to nominate was actually just before that, and it's him being the prison concierge, essentially, taking the soup around to everybody. Because it's, again, it's a humorous bit where, oh, I'm going to take it. Oh, you don't want any? Oh, your loss. Oh, you. Yes, you with the large face scar. Would you like some soup? And it just kind of the, I, I don't know why it's funny, but it is. It's mush. Oh, excuse me. Yes, not soup. It's mush. But uh, yes. yeah, it's Ray Fiennes that is did pan best. Yes, it's filling. It's warm and nutritious. But you also get, and I think this has to be the most unusual character of Harvey Keitel's career, the <laughs> bald, tatted guy who helps plot the prison escape. Uh, yes. Uh, I had forgotten he was in it until I saw that, and I'm like, okay, wow. I don't know. It's just another one of these fun scenes. All right. Do you have any more? The arrest. Because when uh, Ed Norton comes to arrest him and he just co- takes off running, I mean, it's just like, wow. I mean, that's just so absurd. Like, you think you're going to get away? And uh, I just found it comical. Uh, my last nominee is the ski chase. It's a good sequence. The they somehow worked in the same personality of the cinematography into doing a chase scene, and it seemed to work out very well, that it was never completely out of character. And you would think that in a chase scene that you'd have to film it differently, but somehow they made it work. But to me, again, it's that final moment where Gustav is hanging off the cliff and he starts like reciting some poem as uh, Joplin's about to like try and cripple the rock or uh, kick the rock down so that Gustav falls to his death. And all of a sudden zero comes out of nowhere and just shoves him off the cliff. (laughs) And then it's just Gustav's reaction. Like, Holy shit. And I I don't know for whatever reason that that movie's just, or that moment is just hilarious to me. I have one last nominee, which is the return to the hotel with Dimitri and the shootout. Yeah. I, I How the absurdity of all of those bullets flying without one person getting hit. It was like they were all stormtroopers. Well, it was like they were uh, in Naked Gun, um, you know, how they would do the shootouts two feet away and, you know, <laughs> nobody ever got hit. It's just absurd. Yeah, I I did enjoy that particular part of the conclusion. All right, so out of these, what was your favorite scene? The prison escape was my favorite scene. It's just such a madcap situation. It's hilarious to me. It the absurdity of it. I just like that scene the best. For me, it was prison concierge. I again, you know. <laughs> That he didn't get the shit kicked out of him for the face, uh, the man with the face scar, and <laughs> you know then Harvey Keitel and all, I don't know I, that just made me giggle. Uh, what's most indelible moment for you? I'm gonna actually name a scene that I was going to nominate and I didn't, and that's stealing boy with apple, because the absurdity of that taking it and them running through the house and you know to me that just 
that's something that I always remember. It's just the absurdity of how they went about just taking matters into their own hands. Mine is Hersha Ronan's Mexico birthmark. <laughs> no, not really. But that is something that is distinct to this movie. But no, for me, it was uh, actually, I, I wouldn't say it's a moment, but the thing that, because I don't remember any one single moment of the movie, what I remember about this is Ray Fiennes, M. Gustav, and just the look of the film. I think those are the distinct things that immediately when you think about it, it's kind of a conglomeration of different moments into one thing. It's not any one thing that sticks out, but just kind of the look and feel of the movie. I have always been drawn to color and to contrast in color. One of the reasons you don't like five shades of brown. (laughs) Uh, Come on now. That's she doesn't listen. I know. It's a family joke. I'm not an Earth Tones person. All right. That seems like a good uh, spot to stop for one of our sponsors. We'll be right back. And now I want to tell you about Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It gives you smart creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone, tablet, or computer and helps you distribute them to all the major platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and more. Plus, they help to hook you up with sponsorships like this one, no matter the listener size, which will help help you fund your podcast. And best yet, it's free to use. Look, if you've ever had an itch to talk and express yourself about a topic you like, there is no better time than 2020 to do so. I've started two podcasts this year alone, including this one, and we use Anchor for each and every episode. So what do you have to lose? Download the free Anchor app and or go to anchor.fm to get started making your own podcast today. All right, welcome back. Thank you for joining us after the break. Uh, Dad, do we have any in-memoriams this week? Not really. I looked. I did not find anybody. I know that there was an actress by the name of Martha Stewart who was in her 90s that had done some films in the 30s. I'm not, or I'm assuming not the more infamous Martha Stewart. No, she was not the home stylist that's become fast friends with Snoop Dogg. She was a different Martha Stewart. So it's been a quiet week. And Really, well, considering for a how, couple of weeks. Yeah, you know, considering how busy 2021 has been so far, it's probably good. All right, so best lines then. Uh, what do you have first down? You're not getting boy with apple, you goddamn little fruit. How's that supposed to make me feel? Since you went in that direction, and this is in my funniest line category... If I ever learn you ever once laid a finger on my mother's body, living or dead, I swear to God, I'll cut your throat. You hear me? I thought I was supposed to be a fucking faggot. You are, but you're bisexual. That was my next one. Gustav, what is a lobby boy? A lobby boy is completely invisible, yet always in sight. A lobby boy remembers what people hate. A lobby boy anticipates the client's needs before the needs are needed. A lobby boy is, above all, discreet to a fault. Our guests know that their deepest secrets, some of which are frankly rather unseemly, will go with us to our graves. So keep your mouth shut, Zero. 
Rudeness is merely the expression of fear. People fear they won't get what they want. The most dreadful, unattractive person only needs to be loved, and they will open up like a flower. What happened? What happened, my dear Zero, is I beat the living shit out of that sniveling little runt called Pinky Bendinsky, who had the gall to question my virility. Because if there's one thing we've learned from Penny Dreadfuls, it's that you find yourself in a place like this, you must be never be a candy ass. You've got to prove yourself from day one. You've got to win their respect. You should take a long look at this ugly mug this morning. He's actually become a dear friend. You'll meet him, I hope so. She was dynamite in the sack, by the way. She was 84, Minsor Gustav. Hmm, I've had older. When you're young, it's all filet steak. But as the years go by, you have to move on to the cheaper cuts, which is fine with me because I like those. More flavorful, as, or so they say. To be frank, I think his world had vanished long before he had ever entered it. That's all I got. That's primarily, I had a bunch of others, but I, eh, they're not that great, but there were a lot of good lines in here. I think the delivery is better than the lines themselves. Yes. A lot of it's, is timing, which is interesting since none of the actors in here were comedians, except Bill Murray. But I think that has more to do with the direction because and getting that timing out of the actors. You could also say to a certain degree it's probably editing. Yeah, and from what I understand in, in doing some research outside, Wes Anderson is much more of a controlled director. He wants precision with the script. There's not a lot of ad-libbing. There's not a lot of freestyling. And some of the actors have problems with that. Uh, Ray Fiennes, for example, was very concerned that his more uh, ad-lib or freestyle method of acting was not going to blend well with Wes Anderson and had to be assured that there would be certain elements that they would rework the script to accommodate him if he felt it necessary. All right. You ready for our Stanley rubric? Of course. Of course, of course. It depends. It depends, it depends. All right, Legacy, what do you have down? 6.5. Not a film that, if you mention it to a lot of people, they don't remember it right away. You have to remind them somewhat. That's why I went with 6.5. It's above average. People will remember the film, but just not one that uh, uh, is in the mainstream. So this is one that I know of when I turn it on, but it's not one I think of often or would make it as like one of the great movies of the last decade if I made a list. This would be one that, oh, yeah, if somebody else included, you're like, oh, I really love that movie. And that's why for me, when this popped up on Prime the other week, I'm like, yeah, we should cover that one because I really enjoy the movie. But it's not one that I immediately think of yet. In the people that I talk to in my daily social circle, I'm actually surprised how many people had either heard of the film that I didn't think would have heard of it at all. And even the few people that had actually seen it, and I think universally, as I mentioned at the top of the show, this is just a popular movie if you've seen it. But 
Uh, I gave it a six. So that'll be 6.25 between us. Uh, again, I think removed it is hurt a little bit by the fact that uh, this is the biggest movie from Wes Anderson, and we haven't really gotten anything huge since then. He did Isle of Dogs, which, again, unless you're like part of film circles, is just kind of an under-the-radar movie for most people because it was an animated film. And The French Dispatch didn't come back or didn't actually come out last year, so we haven't had this new or renewed conversation on Wes Anderson. So it's kind of one that now it's six years removed. You just don't think about in the same way. Well, seven years pretty much, I guess, at this point, because it would have been a spring release. So this is this is just kind of a, a little bit of a lost movie. But I think that, again, because if you mention the name, there's an association, people still enjoy it. So I kind of I, I wavered a little bit. I wasn't sure where to go, but I ultimately landed on a six. So that's 6.25 between us. Impact significance, I feel like I'm repeating, but I had about the same level of difficulty trying to give this one a proper score, and it was a six. But I think this one's a little bit more nuanced for me. So it was a surprising box office hit for Anderson. It's by far his best grossing movie. It was kind of a darling indie film at the time. But again, he only has made one movie since, and this is kind of in the the where we're only a couple of years into the legacy category because usually we try and say that impact significance is in that first five or so years. We're only six, seven years removed from this this movie, and it was nominated for a bunch of awards, but especially in the expanded best picture category. It seemed like a lot of the awards for this movie were add-ons or tack-ons because people just generally liked the movie. They liked kind of the craftsmanship, the artwork, or the not the artwork, but the artistry to it. And because it was kind of a generally popular film, they decided to throw it in a whole bunch of categories. I don't think it was universally seen as one of these great movies, but it, it's kind of the way you've told me the story of Budweiser, that it's the most or everybody's third favorite beer you know i think this was everybody's fifth favorite movie that year yeah i i i I understand and because this was a spring film and there weren't too many films coming out at that time that's one of the reasons why i you know wanted to see it so bad because there's so few films that come out during the early part of the year that are something that I personally am drawn towards. You know, most of them are, you know, the films that I could, you know, if I watch them, whatever, I don't really Fast care. Fast and Furious or The Avengers or, yeah. Yeah, or uh, uh, I'm trying to think of films about this time frame. Uh, the the uh, Independence Day, that type of thing where... You know, that was like 20 these, years before this. Well, I'm just saying. I, that's just one of the films that came to mind that it's a film that I don't necessarily get drawn towards because it's a summer blockbuster type of deal. I've never really enjoyed the summer blockbusters because they're not designed or targeted for me. I'm an old FUD. And have been for quite some time. But anyway, what was your score? Uh, 6.5. 
Okay, so you did a repeat as well, and I don't remember if I gave my proper score, but I had a 6, so that's, again, a 6.25 between us. Uh, Novelty, I had a 9.5. I really had a hard time giving it the full 10, because, so here's the one thing that I'll say, and this is where I'm going to reserve it. I think by the time we're done with the show, we'll have probably had the space to review the French Dispatch, and from what people were talking about it, I think that is going to be this movie, but even more Wes Anderson-y. Like, <laughs> y- you you talk about certain directors, and they have a flair, and then they just, like, steer directly into the things that make the personality of their movies. Like, Chris Nolan has steered into the essence of what Christopher Nolan movies are, and that's what Tenet is. It's the most Christopher Nolan-like movie and I think this is probably to date the most West or Wes Anderson movie that you could possibly have, except that I think that he can still top what is a Wes Anderson movie. There could be a more Wes Anderson like movie than this. So I reserved it and gave it just that 9.5. But again, you talk about the camera work is unlike anything I can think of other than maybe old Hollywood in the way that it kind of steps out of the frame a little bit, or it takes a step back in order to display the the full picture, but doesn't really move the camera with people a lot. It isn't having those back and forth cut shots over the shoulder to do conversations. That's pretty ordinary. It, it's really not following in that same direction. You're, you're just kind of getting these um, step back camera shots for most of it. The color scheme is much more played up, especially with some very bright neon-like colors. It's dark yet quirky and kind of funny. The humor is distinct. I, I just think this is, again, I take it back to like a really classic guitarist when you know exactly how they play and they have such a distinct and unique style. Wes Anderson and certain other directors, I know their movies immediately upon watching a small section of their movie. And so to me, this is a 9.5. I had 9.5. The visual aspect of the film, um, Wes Anderson is well known for his color and for his cinematography and for his film angles and shots and such. And to me, that was the case. The only reason this didn't get a 10 for me is because the ensemble uh, humor film has been done before, but I don't know if it's been done in quite the same way with the level of dark humor that it was. So I couldn't give it more than or more than a half a point reduction. So that's where I came up with nine point five. All right. So classicness. If you don't mind, I'll try and go first. I don't know if we're far enough removed to find the cringe moments in this movie yet. So ultimately, I had to kind of start from the 10, and usually I start from the 10 and then just knock points off as I find something cringy about it, but the humor's still there, and it it doesn't have any real ugly moments. They don't make fun of people for the sake of making fun of people. They're in Eastern Europe, and they feature people from all over the place, but like one of the primary characters is kind of middle Eastern heritage. Uh, so you, you don't even really have that. And you do have distinct 
types of people in this one, even if it's not the fullest diversity movie, but it's supposed to be 1930s Eastern Europe. So I don't know how far you could have leaned into all of that. Uh, you have mentions of a refugee. I guess the the one moment that I can think of is the use of the word, the the let's say homosexual slur starting with an F. Outside of that, I can't think of anything cringy yet. And so I, I think this category should be revisited at some point, but 9.5 for me. I had a little more problem with it because... Okay. I thought that there was a certain element of taking advantage of elderly women. Um, oh, sure. Okay. That I, I, I had a problem with. Uh, I know it was done for comedic effect and whatever. Um, and the whole problem with the homosexuality and the bisexuality and the comments made. So I went with a 7.5 for that. So I, I, maybe I'm a little hypersensitive during the me to, uh, era of how people can use their positions to uh, take advantage of the uh, the weaker. I don't know if I want to use the term. I, I'm using that very broadly. Taking advantage of elderly women. So to that extent, that's why I went with that. So to me, that's somewhat of an argument. And gosh, we're not the people to be having this discussion, but... It's the difference between first age and second age feminism and where the agency lies. I never really felt that he was necessarily taking advantage of the women. I mean, if you see it in that light and it's played up as such, I think I would see it the way that you do. But I think I feel or the way it's portrayed is just different. And I don't see that the these women, particularly in this case, Madam D, is without agency. Uh, especially because he's a concierge, he's portrayed as somewhat disposable in his own okay. right. So I, I guess you and I again, and that comes back to our discussion at the at the top of the show with slimy. You know, I just I, I don't have that. So I I can respect that you see it that way, but you and I are going to have very different feelings on that one aspect of the film. So what did you have for rewatchability? I did a seven point five on that as well. It's a film that uh, if it's on and I see it on, I may stop and watch a bit. I'm not going to go out of my way if I see it on the on the screen or on the listings to go and watch. But I mean, it, it's a fun film and it's something that I would watch if under certain circumstances. I don't have to necessarily be in the right frame of mind. It's going to be something that I would enjoy. And I could sit and watch for a few minutes or for most of the film if necessary. So this is not going to be one of my favorites. It's not even in the next rung because I, I, again, I reserve that for like the top of the top for me that I can put on at almost any time and I'm going to get enjoyment or humor or whatever else. And despite knowing that I very rarely rewatch films, but there are certain films that I just enjoy watching. It's not even in that next tier, but because again, and I remember distinctly as I was watching this five minutes in, I called you because there was just a smile, like a grin on my face. I giggled in this movie. Like, I don't know why it has that effect on me, but it's just engaging and entertaining and enjoyable. 
So I gave it an eight. Uh, it's not too different from yours, so it'll end up at a 7.75. But it's just it's kind of not one of those top rung movies. But it's not too far down the list where I, I really start to like under five is usually where it's kind of a rough watch for me. Five is average. Like I can sit through it, but, you know, I only do that because I have to sort of thing. And anything above a five is enjoyable that I could rewatch it. So that's kind of where my gradation comes in. Just for the listening audience of where I am with rewatchability is a 10. Okay, I've had a the last few weeks from hell as far as deadlines and commitments and work and things that have been going on. And so my go-to is going home, sitting in front of the TV and just vegetating watching MASH. Even though I've seen every episode probably 20 times, that's a 10 to me because I can laugh, I can smile, and it's just comforting, and I don't have to do anything except react to what's going on on the screen. So that's a 10 for rewatchability to me. And yet, we're doing a film podcast where you said 10 for rewatchability was a TV show. (laughs) I'm just Uh, teasing. All right, so audience score, Google had it at a 94%. Rotten Tomatoes had it as an 86%. That'll average out to a 9. So just to recap, 6.25 for Legacy, 6.25 for Impact Significance, 9.5 for Novelty, uh, 8.5 for Classicness, 7.75 for Rewatchability, and a 9 for Audience Score leads to a 47.25 overall score. And you can right. find that on our list, which is in the show notes. So uh, make sure that you stop over there. The episode show notes are also available in the show notes for every episode. So just click on the episode title in whichever podcast platform you're using. You should be able to find all of that. We do have this is now our 55 or 55th different movie you should be able to find the whole list so far again if you'd like to sign up for our newsletter uh, i'll get to that here in a second Uh, but you can do so by signing up on the website the subscription form is at the bottom uh remaining questions why was the author a national hero (laughs) okay Uh, yeah i had a struggle for the most part with coming up with any remaining questions but for whatever reason that one stuck out to me I have one, and it was a line I almost used as the funniest line, which is where he looks at his, or at uh, uh, Madame D's fingernails and goes, it's not that I don't like it, it's that I'm physically repulsed. What possible color, because it really doesn't show it, is that repulsive that somebody would make that comment? Oh, yeah, that was that was a great moment. <laughs> <laughs> I I really should use that line. It's not that I don't like it. I'm just completely repulsed. <laughs> you're expecting. Oh, yeah, that should have been the funniest line. I had half a mind to use that with your mother sometime when she asked me oh. if I like something. <laughs> the next time she goes jean shopping. <laughs> oh, 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 don't even go there. <laughs> Wow. 
yeah, so, you'll be uh, coming down here to stay for a while. Yeah. I mean, it was enough I made a joke about her having, like, five different color of uh, rib turtleneck sweaters. And oh, God, yes. She stopped wearing them completely. <laughs> All right. you have any other remaining questions? No, I don't. I don't think this leaves a whole lot of remaining questions. It's kind of a contained story. I guess if I had any other, like, open-ended stuff, it's why Agatha had to die. But I, I think it sets up the story plotting a lot different because F. Murray Abraham's portrayal of Zero Mustafa has to be somewhat nostalgic in yes. order to make the rest of that plotting work. And so she would have had to die. Uh, my guess is... is if anything, I would have liked to have given them a little bit more time together, like, I don't know, five or six years. But the fact that his child and his wife both died very suddenly after the events of this film just kind of undercuts that that happy ending for me. Well, what it ultimately shows is, is that money can't ultimately buy happiness. I suppose. Well, this is my life. It always will be. There's nothing else, just us and the microphones and those wonderful people out there in the dark. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Again, next week we will be doing Aliens with our previously mentioned returning guest, Rob Conlon. So catch that one currently on HBO Max. You won't want to miss it. Please like, subscribe, review, or whatever on whatever platform you have so that you can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Instagram at Gmode Podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Anchor FM. <laughs>